Season two of the Sober Curious podcast is supported by Groovy, creators of three delicious alcohol-free drinks that are perfect for any social occasion. I personally love a nice, crisp, non-alcoholic beer. And Groovy do a hoppy, full-bodied IPA and a crisp and tangy Weiss beer, which I also love mixing with lemonade to make a very refreshing shandy. And for when you've got something to celebrate, like because it's Friday night, their zero-proof Prosecco is hands down the tastiest wine alternative that I've tried. Groovy can be found at getgroovy.com, that's get G-R-U-V-I.com, or in specialty markets throughout Colorado. And they're offering you guys 20% off any online order with the code RUBY20. Welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast with me, Ruby Warrington. So when I first started talking about being sober curious, it seemed pretty out there of me to suggest that you didn't have to identify as an alcoholic to quit drinking, or that even if you fell somewhere on the problem drinking spectrum, AA was not necessarily the only way to address this. Of course, I now know that mine is one of many voices disrupting the traditional, very black and white approach to sobriety. And perhaps one of the most controversial among them is my guest on this week's episode. His name is Dr. Adi Jaffe, and he is an addiction expert and the founder of Ignited Recovery, as well as the author of a book called The Abstinence Myth, his theories on which form the basis of this interview. I'm going to let our conversation, in which Adi also shares his experiences of addiction, to speak for itself, but this episode does come with a trigger warning. If you are actively committed to abstinence as part of your recovery, then please, please keep doing what works for you. Adi's approach and methodology is not for everybody, and that said, he makes some very valid points about the dangers of a one-size-fits-all approach to recovery. I'll stop in again and say goodbye on the other side. For now, this is Adi. Adi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk to me today. Although I've come to your house and we're using your equipment. So. I love it. Yes. Thank, <laughs> thank you for coming to my house and using my equipment for your podcast. And we, it's so nice to see you again. It's lovely to see you again. I'm trying to think it was after Sober Curious had just come out that I went on your podcast and I can actually share a link to that in the show notes so you can hear the kind of other side of this conversation. Yeah, everybody. that was a really fun conversation. Yeah, it was back in February um, and I was kind of quite burnt out on the promo trail from Sober Curious. Oh, were you? I was actually, yeah. It's a lot having a book out, you know? I self-publish, so yeah. nobody else pushed me, which is the opposite side of it. Like you have to remind yourself, I have to go promote my stuff. Right, yeah. Because regular life happens. To you, you've got an agent and a publisher. I was like, hey... Uh, push schedule. this thing get out we there we gotta do it yeah it's true it's true although I tend to push myself a lot too sure. you know I'm one of those type A's no doubt yeah <laughs> I think uh, there's a lot of us type are there a lot A's. of type B's that write books I wonder because just the writing of the book alone true. is a huge undertaking it is it's true um, and so your book your book is called The Abstinence Myth when did your is. book come out when did it come out I think it was September of 2018 hmm. it came out yeah, um, but again, self-published, so went out on Amazon. That's pretty much the primary place it sells through. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear every once in a while of somebody buying in the bookstore, and I don't really even understand how that happens. I mean, I know Amazon has their distribution thing, so mm-hmm. I don't, it's available for stores to buy it if they want it. 
But uh, yeah, the vast majority of it is bought either directly through me mm-hmm. or from Amazon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I will just, you know, take this moment to recommend that anybody who is who would consider themselves sober curious, and I'm guessing that's you if you're listening to a podcast <laughs> called Sober Curious. Yeah, it's probably, um, there's, there's probably a out, niche there. Check out Adi's book because I... Yeah, when when I was introduced to your work, I immediately recognized, oh, here's somebody else who wants to have the real conversation about what's really going on here. Mm. And your book, um, if I thought that my book was going to be controversial, (laughs) having a book out... um, considering you know considering your sort of background and the work you do as well titled the abstinence myth it's yeah. really that was really like throwing a cat among the pigeons it right was. It it really was. Was. that was on purpose i it mean was, yeah it had two purposes one of them is obviously to cause a little bit of controversy that was one of them but the second one is i'm writing it for a particular kind of person hmm. you know if you're drinking too much and you want to go to aa or you're checking out a rehab, or you got a DWI and you're doing your classes, like you probably don't want my book, or you're not the, the major target for my book. My book is there for two kinds of people, mm. people who've been struggling for a long time and have been saying, I don't see anything that speaks my language, and so I'm not getting any help, and I see a lot of those people. And then on the flip side, the complete opposite of that are the people who've been trying to get help for a decade or two decades and they've tried everything that they've heard of everything normal Mm. um and it just hasn't worked and one of the ways that we know that it hasn't worked the thing that they've been told over and over that they're supposed to measure their recovery by is abstinence and so for those people they go oh Everybody's always told me abstinence is a thing what is this abstinence myth Mm. and so in either case and i've had literally i've had wives and parents who told me my partner or my son just they won't do anything i won't they won't read anything i give them i i try to send them something take the book and just put it in front of them hey i read this book about not quitting Mm. try it out Mm. and it makes them pick it up Mm. and i read a book about not quitting yeah and (laughs) you know we can be as judgmental as we want about either my methods or about addicts who are out there suffering and i'll i'm putting addicts in like in air quotes Mm. because it's the term we all use but about the people who are out there struggling we can have whatever judgment we want the bottom line is they're suffering and a lot of them are dying i don't want to be part of the judgment i just want to start offering solutions that matter and that help them so the title gets it in the hands of people who otherwise um wouldn't pick out a book about addiction yeah right exactly or like you say it's for people who have because there is right out there the kind of commonly received wisdom at this point in our history um is that abstinence is the cure for addiction yeah i mean even your the title of your book sober curious even though the word sober doesn't mean fully abstaining right if you really look it up mm. at best it means not drunk if mm. you're even associated with alcohol but other than that it just means responsible even keeled uh, you know sober as a judge it's the mm. idea is like somebody who can be trusted who's who's making responsible decisions mm-hmm. and um but it's been co-opted and part of the way it's been co-opted is to mean abstaining fully abstaining and so it's funny to me that you thought to yourself oh my god i'm going to say this stuff and it's going to be so controversial because i saw it and it was kind of really clever it was this nice idea of 
do you have to go all in on abstinence or can you just be curious about it? And there are a lot more people who are curious about abstinence than people who are pursuing it. Mm. So it was mm. this really nice way of getting at the same, at some of the same people I speak to. And instead of saying to them, um, maybe you don't have to quit, it's almost like you can be curious about quitting. Yeah. It's kind well, of you what can you're be, saying. So I, like often I'll describe sober curious as like, get curious about what it's like to live a life without alcohol. Yeah. And like, all that that entails, all of the feelings you're going to feel, all of the confronting situations you're going to find yourself sure. in, all of the kind of like cravings that are going to come up. It's like, get curious about the root of all that stuff. Like, where is all that coming from? Is it all coming from inside you? Is it all stuff that's been projected mm. onto you? Like, what is that all about? You know? Sure. Yeah. Um, and to me, it's, I think the overarching point maybe of my book mm. is it's not about the alcohol, mm. you know, and mm-hmm. and I think that's something we'll talk about quite a bit. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's not about, so the idea that abstinence is the cure would suggest that, well, you just remove this substance and ta-da, you are cured. And there's actually, there's a couple of statistics that I'd love if you could sort of um, verify or speak to a little bit. One is that 90% of people in recovery or abstinence-based recovery programs will relapse. I Which immediately within, suggests to me that that it that it is not then the cure if the idea is to quit drinking. And I think that statistic is roughly eighty-five to ninety percent. Okay. I think that's within a year. Oh wow! Right. Okay. Something like sixty percent relapse within a month mm-hmm. of engaging in some sort of a program. Mm. Um, I believe it's eighty-five to ninety percent within a year. Okay. Now again, that's using something that we call intent to treat analysis. Um, and a lot of people don't like that for the, and I'll explain why in a yeah. second. But it means you can't take people out because they weren't serious. You can't take people out because they didn't really do it or they left after 15 days and they didn't complete the program. It's a very simple question. Did they try it and did they stay sober? Yeah. That's the question, right? Yeah. And the success statistics are dismal. Yeah. Like horrible. When you really look all the way down at it, only about one out of a hundred people who need help get successful help given traditional um, wow. traditional metrics and traditional treatment methods. Because One percent. Yeah, because only about 15% look for help. Only mm. about 12 to 13% get help. And out of those 13% that get help, about 85 to 90% relapse see, pretty yeah. quickly, which leaves only about one, one and a half percent who meet criteria for success right now, which is abstinence. Yeah. Um, where the rubber meets the road for me is to say, look, if you think what we're doing right now is working, then you're blind, period. We don't need more evidence that what we're doing isn't working. Mm. We're when good. You, when you say we're failing miserably, failing at what exactly? If, so, it's, if it's not necessarily about getting everyone to like quit drinking. <laughs> sure. So If that's what we're talking, we're not necessarily talking about like abstinence for all is the like, ultimate uh, goal prohibition. here. Right. Okay. Prohibition is not the goal. Which then, by so. the way, a lot of people who are in traditional abstinence have adopted this view. Mm. And we'll talk about this more hopefully that just alcohol is bad and therefore we should eradicate it from our life. And again, that puts a focus on alcohol and alcohol is not the issue. Yes. Marketing. Yes. Sales. I get it. Yes. Movies. Mm. That's the issue is not alcohol, in my opinion. So Mm-mm. what is the goal you asked? Mm. Um, yeah, what is success? You mentioned like, you know, that we have. a. We so have let me a, be clear. I'll, I'll explain what success is in a second. But, yeah. you know, everybody keeps looking at these uh, drug deaths chart, right? We've all we've been looking at it now for five, six, seven years as the opioid epidemic has taken mm-hmm. up. 
the death rate from drugs has been consistently increasing since we've been measuring it. That to me is one sign that we're failing. Mm. So, you know, this method, the traditional, and I'm going to say it out loud, right? Like the 12 steps have been around since the 1930s. This thing that I get yelled at all the time, that all you need is God and a a meeting. Um, And yet more and more people are dying every year. Mm. And it's not because they haven't heard of AA. Mm. Because AA is everywhere. It's getting more and more. I think it's everywhere. It's less anonymous than ever, right? Robert Downey Jr., Brad Pitt now, um, you know, Demi Lovato, like... Every celebrity, when they get sober, they talk about their meetings and their their fellowship and the program. Um, it's AA is better known now than it's ever been. Yeah. So if it works so well, why are more people dying than ever before? Right. So that's that's one metric by which I measure our failure. Yeah. Also, by the way, the fact that eighty five percent of people won't even look for help is another measure of our failure, in my opinion. Everybody wants to blame the quote unquote addicts for that statistic but you know what that doesn't exist in any other field Mm. even for depression Mm. something like 40 some percent of people go to get help for for other medical conditions like um cancer or diabetes it's flipped 80 to 90 percent of people with diabetes or cancer go get help so we can keep trying to blame the people who are struggling or we can just see them as people who are struggling and try to figure out how to help them actual help you know so that's that's how I see and know that the system is failing. But you brought up a good point, and it is, I think that if people start listening to the message that I'm giving out, which is stop focusing on the abstinence all the time, well, actually see that we're probably way more successful than we think we are at helping making people's lives matter and make their lives better, and that's really the end goal, right? Um, nobody comes to me because they drink three bottles of wine in a night and they're doing great. Mm. <laughs> I've never had a client who's like, you know what? My life is amazing. I mean, I put down a bottle of vodka a night, but... Everything else is going great. Everything's amazing. I love it. My relationship with my husband is great. Uh, my kids are amazing. My job, killing it. Nobody walks in that way. The reason people come in is because life sucks. And, and the, the vodka message, is the medication. The message they've been getting over and over and over is if you get rid of the drinking, your life will be better. Yeah. The point that everybody's missing is 20 years have passed. And when the drinking started being medicine, it was 20 or 30 years ago. And if we don't fix the stuff that was wrong 20, 30 years ago, and everything that's accumulated since, Mm. the vodka is like you just said, it's medicine. Mm. And essentially Mm. what you're telling somebody is, if I take your medicine, you will get better. And it makes no sense when I say it that way. And it makes exactly that little sense to the people you say it to. And that's why they don't want the help you give them. Because it doesn't make sense alcohol meth in my situation cocaine whatever the people weed whatever they're using they're using to make their life okay tolerable whatever word they would use for bearable yeah removing that from the equation you're just left with the unbearable that doesn't seem to them to uh, provide a solution yeah and so because it doesn't make sense they don't engage they don't engage we get what we get right now and like you said you brought up the other stat that i wanted to mention which i read first in your book and have been telling, like i use it all the time and always credit you don't worry <laughs> and it's not you know i don't <laughs> know where stat, it came but... from it's not your stat but that i that thing it just struck me as so like sad actually that only 
like 15, 10 to 15% of people who perceive alcohol to be a problem will ask for help. Who meet criteria for uh, problematic alcohol use. Right, and so okay. just so everybody knows where that comes from, so yeah. nobody has to email me about it and <laughs> ask. Uh, it comes literally from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Yeah, okay. Uh, SAMHSA, and they do a survey called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, yeah. called the NISDA. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's these are like the two, two of the biggest organizations mm-hmm. around substance mm-hmm. mental health um, in the country, and the biggest sorry, the biggest organization and the biggest survey. And that's those are their numbers. So, to be honest, the numbers are actually probably worse. Yeah, because there are a lot of people that when you ask them are not going to report problematic use because it's not okay. So or because probably, they perceive it as being normal because yep. problematic use is actually totally normalized. In some context, for sure. So yeah. probably a few more people struggle with help than we um, we believe. And then it's among the people who struggle reporting that they're doing well or that they're getting help is potentially more popular than saying, no, yeah, I'm not right. doing anything about it. Yeah. So... I have a feeling that the numbers are even a little bit worse. We just don't have a way of, yeah. of reporting that. Right. So, yeah, so that's where the numbers come from. And it's really scary to me. And so when I wrote The Abstinence Myth, the goal was almost universally to just get more people help. Yeah. Because we don't even have to get better at the help. We can provide the same help, but get twice as many people into Through the system. The <laughs> and we'll have twice as many people saved. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I think, so, So yeah, what was so... Um striking to me was that largely it's because of this thing like abstinence what give it up completely where and the immediate things that come up with that are like well my so i'll never have a social life like how do i deal with this what will everyone say but then the deeper subconscious stuff is like no you're taking away my medicine yeah and i can't live without that you know even around that how will i have friends Mm. it's really the same question right Mm. Mm. because i get that all the time i'm sure you do as well well I'll never be able to hang out with people again. Or I'll never be able to go to a wedding. Let's just follow that down the trail. It's Everybody knows you can go to a wedding and not drink. It's not that they don't understand that. The fear is I'm going to stick out. The fear is I'm not going to be like other people. Other people will not accept me. Well, guess what? That's what we need to address. Yeah. We need to address why you think that you need to do the same thing as everybody else for them to accept you. Mm. That's the problem. Mm. Because if we can resolve that, we can resolve a lot of the struggles you have around alcohol. Mm. Um, I started drinking because of social anxiety. Um, I was awkward around girls and I um, didn't really feel like I would measure it up even around guys. And so when somebody handed me a bottle, I didn't really know what the effect was going to be. But I felt awkward and I wanted to fit in. So I drank. And then when I drank, I realized the effect. And the effect was I cared less about what they thought of me. So it worked. Mm-hmm. I could talk to girls better. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't that worried about how they'd react to the things that I said. Mm-hmm. And I like that because I didn't like worrying about well, be what feeling other people insecure. thought. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So yeah. as I say that, I know there are people listening right now who go, well, yeah, that's why I drink. Well, cool. But alcohol is not the problem. Why do you care so much about what other people think of you? And when did that start? And how can we work on that would be my question then. So then looking at beyond the abstinence myth (laughs) let's if you could just unpack a little bit more about where you think what you think is the real solution like where where people can really find a cure or the help that they're looking for or the kind of way out of whatever trap mind trap Mm. they're in that has brought them to the place where they're like i need to get rid of this thing yeah absolutely so a couple of things first of all having conversations like these and expanding people's understanding of what is feasible and what is possible within the context of recovery is hugely important. 
Um, we have mountains of evidence. I talk about some of it in my book mm. that what you believe creates a, this ongoing loop with the people around you. And if you believe that you are a useless, hopeless, quote unquote, alcoholic, or if they believe that about you, it transmits back and forth and we end up getting stuck in this loop of self-fulfilling prophecies. A lot of evidence around that. We talk about some of that in the book. Mm. Um, so one of the things you have to do is you have to start cracking windows open and leaving doors open to other possibilities of what could recovery look like for me. Maybe there are different paths that I haven't even looked at yet that I haven't considered other than the one that gets played out to us, which is you're either the homeless, drunk, drinking out of a paper bag, or you're the sober, upstanding citizen that everybody loves, right? Like that dichotomy, yeah. we have to shift that dichotomy a little bit. Um, or a lot, given the the multiple, you know, shades lot. of the rainbow that we exist along. Yeah. yeah, there are people struggling with alcohol right now. You have no idea that they're struggling right, with alcohol. Right, exactly. They're drinking a half a bottle of vodka to a bottle of vodka every day, and you just see them as your quirky like employee mm. or uh, mm. or the weird guy in the next in the next room mm-hmm. um and housewives that are doing really really well and are on ptas and are drinking three bottles of wine a night so like we have to massage a lot mm. you're right the mm. definition of what we see that's mm. number one mm. and the second piece is and i talk about this now in almost every one of my talks fortunately which is great because the reason i don't like the term addict or alcoholic is the connotation is that they're all the same and they say that all the time like all alcoholics all addicts there is nothing true about all alcoholics and all addicts that's like saying that there's something true about all black people or white people it's just not true mm. it's just all alcoholic quote-unquote means is somebody who struggles with alcohol that's the only thing that they mm. have in common mm. um, and so in the book I talk about four factors biology psychology environment and spirituality And what I say is, look, we keep trying to describe a group of people as being one unit, but they're not. Each one of them is struggling along one of those four factors. Um, Sorry. Each one of them is struggling along those four factors. The the combination of the four factors and the level of struggle is different for each person. It's just unique. Yeah. Some of them have huge biological predisposition. They're impulsive and sensation-seeking. They have a really hard time... um, planning and the prefrontal cortex is not fully on board and the risk risk takers uh, and their body doesn't respond to alcohol a lot which means they need to drink more to get the effects of alcohol which makes them more likely to become problematic with alcohol and all the biology stuff is stacked against them but they've had no trauma so their psychology factor is not that big Uh, but they also work in an environment where a lot of people drink all the time so their environmental influence is high Mm. Um, but they're connected to god or spirituality or whatever purpose whatever bigger thing than them is there on the fourth factor and so Mm. they're protected in two factors have a really big problem in biology and have a pretty big problem in environment talking to that person about deep trauma and death and rape is not relevant because they haven't experienced it and yet we have people who promote that everybody's had trauma it's just not true right now again, if you over if you define the definition, if you expand the definition of trauma to what I call little t trauma, um, then yes, we've all experienced negative events in our lives. Yeah, we haven't all been raped yeah. or sexually molested or, lost or a beaten or, or yeah. had a close death, right? Um, so, what I talk about in the book is you have to figure out for yourself what are the factors that matter. And then what I work through with people in my programs is, and I do some of this in the book with questions along each chapter, is 
you've read about this factor. Think about it. What plays into your life around biology or psychology or environment or spirituality? Start understanding what you actually struggle with because you don't struggle with alcoholism. It's just a name somebody gave the problem of not being able to control your drinking. You know, but that's like if somebody uh, lose if somebody has no leg, calling them like no legism. It's just it's a descriptive term that makes no sense. Like, are you an amputee? Were you born without? Like all those things, they're just not the same. And we try to. That's a big point I make in the book is we keep trying to figure out what is the cause of alcoholism or what is the cause of addiction or who is an addict. Well, they're not the same. So you're using a term to try to describe a group of people that is just heterogeneous. So that's why we keep running. We keep banging our head against the wall. Nobody yeah. can figure out the answer to that because there is no answer. There is they're no not answer one type of person. question. Right. Um, and so that to me is a huge failure because mm-hmm. what I get over and over and over, over and over and over on Facebook and Instagram messages and sometimes in emails uh, when they get really, really um, excited is you don't get this thing. You're not an addict. You don't understand. And you know, if you knew my story, then A, you wouldn't say that, which by the way, it's pretty public. Like, you could look you it up. You can just look it up, <laughs> and it's pretty easy. If you would have met me when I was using, you would have called me an addict. So it's nice of you. Thank you for not calling me an addict now, but it's just bullshit. You've just adjusted to the way I am right now. In your mind, what I used to be couldn't become what I am now, but here it is, so deal with it. Um, and I've seen other people do the same thing over and over and over, so I've stopped believing that I'm a unique case. And now for me, the goal is to help people understand what are their true struggles and how do I get them to winning and a victory and and happiness and joy in their life. So I would love to hear a bit about your story and sure. how you came to, I'm, I'm assuming and it may be completely wrong, that it's through your own journey and applying these kind of principles to your own experience yep. that you've developed the, your own theories around this, that Absolutely. you now work with other people. So let's, let's go back in time to when you first got handed that bottle of booze and it first became a solution for you. Like how sure. old were you? I was 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in a sleepaway camp mm. and um, boys and girls in the same cabin, even though we weren't allowed to, <laughs> it was very, a very big uh, transgression on our part, mm. but that's what you do in sleepaway camp. Mm-hmm. And so this kid who was, you know, I don't know, a peer, he wasn't like the coolest kid there, but he was another kid there, another mm. boy, mm. pulled out a handle of vodka, it was a huge bottle of vodka, mm. and he started passing it around. We were sitting in a, a big circle, there were a few people scattered, not a few, like 40 people in this cabin. And um, it got to me, and I'd never had a drink like that before, and I saw everybody else doing it, and so I just put it up to my lips, and I took a gulp, and it burnt, and it felt disgusting. I mean, alcohol tastes like ass. It's horrible tasting. (laughs) I mean, it's petrol, so like it tastes like petrol. Yeah, Yeah. Um, (laughs) and, and I had it, and then I took another sip, and I kept passing it around. Every once in a while, it would come back to me, and... You know, 15, 20 minutes later after that first swig, I got that warm feeling and I felt more comfortable. My anxiety was down. And I remember later on that night, I ended up talking to a girl. I think I might have even fooled around with that girl. And that was, you know, when you're a 14-year-old boy, that's sort of what defines whether a night went well. Um, Did I get to kiss somebody that I'm attracted to? And um, It's kind of like, am I going to be okay? Can I cut it as a man or not? Yeah. yeah, I didn't even. I wouldn't have even known to define it as that back then. Mm. But it definitely helped me 
approach or do the things that I wanted to do, especially around women, in a way that I just hadn't been comfortable doing before. Um, so it worked. Mm-hmm. And I remember literally on the bus two days later, heading back to the airport to go. We were living in Chicago at the time in this sleepaway camp was in New Jersey. I knew half the people on the bus really well. I was giving people high fives, singing with them in the in the um, you know sort of on on the bus. You're standing up, mm. and I felt amazing. And um, it's not that I'd never been social before, but I had a level of ease that I'd never experienced before. And from that moment on, I would start getting invited to parties where people drank back in Chicago, and so that happened at least a couple of times a month. I would go mm-hmm. to a friend's house and we'd drink and we'd mm-hmm. hang out and get a little drunk. Um, and then we moved. We moved to upstate New York from Chicago. And that's when I got introduced to weed in pretty much the same setting. Less people in the room, but a bunch of people. One girl that I was into and she handed me a joint. I was going to say no to her. Mm-hmm. And I started smoking weed. Having had alcohol as a tool allowed me to fit in better in that school already anyway. Because now when I'd meet people, we could go out drinking and I'd sort of be in. Also, we were 16 at that point. Like, almost all the kids I knew drank. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's how it started. Just like mm-hmm. a normal kid in high school doing what everybody else in high school was doing. And I was just going to say, so many people are going to be listening to this thinking, yeah, that was me. And that's how it starts. And that is just completely the norm. And I've spoken about this a lot when people are like, what's the big mission with Sober Curious? I'm like, well... It's honestly to make it as normal not to drink as it is to drink mm. because we live in a society where we don't actually get that choice as a as a as a human becoming an adult like it, drink drinking taking other drugs as part as part of our rite of passage into adulthood and yeah, it's just drinking, there's, not, there's not really an option not to be involved in it you know drinking probably obviously more than other drugs right yes because um, of, because of the legality issues yeah cigarettes used to be like that oh, too yes oh yes cigarettes like, came before people just, booze for me actually people would just ask you if you wanted a cigarette like yeah. just all the time yeah nobody asks you if you want a cigarette now it just doesn't happen <laughs> um but back in the day you'd walk into a party be like hey you want a cigarette um and and people were smoking all over too so mm. it was really easy to do it mm. yeah i mean alcohol is definitely it's you know it's a catch-22 for people i believe because one of the things that's hard for people to overcome is through exposure, getting engaged in activities without your drug of choice is hard. Mm. But drinking is everywhere. Mm. Like you have to pass a liquor store 40 times an hour if you drive in LA. Um, or if you, you go walk to in the streets of New York, you're passing a chalkboard advertising a happy hour like every other. There you go. Like a couple of times every block. Yeah, and then if you walk into the market, there's the alcohol section right there. So you get exposed to it all the time, which means that if you do the work the way I believe the work should be done, the retriggering stops faster because you have to figure out how to deal with life without the alcohol. Yeah. Whereas, like, if you use meth or coke or yeah. opiates, you don't deal with it. It doesn't come up until one day you see a baggie on the street or somebody goes, hey, do you want to bump? And you've had no opportunity to prepare because nobody trains you to prepare right, for yeah. blow. So alcohol is easier and harder in that way. Yeah, interesting. Um, hmm. But weed is becoming the same thing right now mm, in L.A. Mm. I mean, I know you're just visiting right now, but you've been here enough. Mm-hmm. You will get offered weed everywhere. Um, you first mean of all, it's kind legal. of like socially at parties and just kind of it's just... Oh, 100%. Yeah. And, I mean, if you go to a party now in L.A., 
where you know in LA County it's legal, right, for recreational use. Mm-hmm. It gets passed around the way cigarettes used to get passed mm-hmm. around, and I hope we'll get to it in this conversation. I don't even think that's a bad thing or a good thing. Mm. It's just what is. But it's becoming like alcohol, you know. We're not quite at the level yet where you go to a wedding and somebody be like, "Hey, do you do you want to join?" There's to a joint toast, on every kind of like to toast mat. the yeah. <laughs> the marriage, which is what happens with alcohol, right? Yeah, yeah. The way you mark a celebration is with alcohol. You had a baby, somebody will bring you a bottle. Uh, you housewarming, somebody will bring you a bottle. Uh, if they really, really love you, it's an expensive bottle of champagne or a really good bottle of like whiskey or something like that. If they're kind of just pretty good friends, they'll bring you like a, a mediocre bottle of wine. But regardless, we're celebrating. So here's alcohol is the mm-hmm. message. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we talked about this before. And if I can, we can talk about my story more. Yeah, I want to hear um, more about how, how things progressed. So there was alcohol, then there was weed. Yeah. Um, so before I go back into yeah. it, I just want to put a pin in the fact that I want to talk about how, and it relates back to my story. In mm. my story, the alcohol and the weed were not the problem. Mm. Just like mm. the fact that people offer it to us is not the issue, in my opinion. The norms are important to re-regulate because it shouldn't be expected that you will do it necessarily. But the vast majority of people who drink don't have a problem with alcohol, Right. In America, for instance, about 40% of Americans don't drink at all. They consider themselves fully abstinent. No AA, none of that. They just don't drink. 30% literally don't drink at all. About 10% of Americans report they drink about one drink a year, which to me is like a joke. Because to me, that means they might go to like a wedding a year and they just have a toast. I don't mm-hmm. know why you would drink a drink a year. I have no idea why that I think would it's even. probably what you just described. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe well, it's like a Christmas toast. Or like, oh, yeah, yeah. Christmas, I had a drink. Or something, exactly. yeah. So 40% of Americans are what I consider non-drinkers. The other 60%, only about 15 to 20% of those people are what you might consider heavy or problematic drinkers. And not even all heavy drinkers are problematic drinkers. That means that like 75% of Americans have no problem with alcohol. Mm. About 35% of Americans are non-problematic drinkers. And we always focus on the big problem. So the norm is an issue in so much as it creates risk for the people who might develop a problem. But what I think is important, I want to say it out loud so that everybody hears it. If alcohol was even not around, let's say prohibitionism somehow um, took hold again and prohibition Mm. Mm. became a reality here. People just go to the next thing. Because just like for me, the drugs and the alcohol were a solution to a problem. Taking away the drugs and the alcohol doesn't solve the problem. So for me, uh, I graduated high school. Didn't do that well, but it had nothing to do per se with the drugs so much as it has to do with um, I'm not great at doing work in school. And uh, in Israel, that didn't matter. But in the States, it did. I was also rebelling against my parents quite a bit because uh, some issues I had with my dad. And alcohol and drugs were definitely a way to show that rebellion. But I was hanging out with friends all the time and not going to school a lot, ditching school, just hanging out during the day, smoking weed, whatever. Um, But I graduated. I and also, I just want to say, you since have written a book and you have a PhD, so yeah, it went, it went okay. There was in the end. something, it, something turned out. Okay. It turned out okay, but it was it got it got hairy there in the middle. Yeah. Um, so I graduated high school, but I graduated in the lower fiftieth percentile of my class, like in the bottom half. Um, I made it out though, and I got into a college, which was a surprise to my parents, but I got into a pretty good college. But I went to college separately from my girlfriend at the time, and this is that first girlfriend. Remember that first relationship, the the one that where your heart was still full and complete and had never been broken. <laughs> there were no cuts on it quite yet. And so um, 
you thought that was the one, that was the universe. Dated, we went to school about an hour apart, um, and so we would see each other a lot on the weekends. And then at the beginning of second semester, towards the end of the first semester, uh, it turned out she had met another guy. It's the cliche story, right? Like she met a senior, she was a freshman, he was amazing. And so she broke up with me through on the phone. It, things had been going badly, but now I understand why they were going badly. She met this other guy. Because um, I'm a gem. So there's no reason why anybody would break up with me other than obviously. She was stolen. Just steal. And just obviously, <laughs> a, you know, what a what a terrible, terrible human she was. I'm obviously kidding, by the way, for everybody listening. Um, so she broke up with me and I lost it. And I went through like a six-month depression. Now, again, social anxiety. I'm awkward around women. And in my head, I had it, and it went away. And in my head, I swear, I went to this place where I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. I'm never going to find somebody who's going to want to be with me. I'm a loser. It's never going to happen. Like, that's where my head went. And I went to a depression for six months. And all I did was smoke weed and drink, smoke weed and drink, smoke weed and drink. Like, that's literally, I would wake up somewhere between noon and three, smoke and drink all day, pass out, wake up. I was missing tests. I was missing classes. I was doing nothing. Mm. Um, and during that time, I started looking for harder things because my medicine wasn't quite doing it. I needed to have my brain messed a little bit more. I found hallucinogens. I found cocaine. I found ecstasy during that summer um, and dr- tried blow for the first time. Just looking to get kind of like further out of your mind, further out of this. I did not want to be connected to who I was and what I felt like in my fears. Further away from yourself. And it worked, man. Like, drugs are great at a handful of things. They're great at making you feel different. They're great at passing time. Um, And they're great, depending on what substance you use and the specific impact of it, at numbing you to what's really going on and I went all in I just went all in on all of that and I ended up in the middle of all that transferring to UCLA by like I don't even know how I made it and how they allowed me in but it just barely worked Um, but in order to get in because I barely barely made it they had some requirements the summer before I moved out to LA and I remember I had to take two summer classes and I had to lie to my parents because it was this whole thing I um so comp- such a complicated story. I'd been arrested in Buffalo. It was my first arrest. I'd stolen a lot, but the first time I got caught. And so I had probation, so I had to stay in Buffalo, even though I was moving to L.A. by the end of the summer, and I had to make up these classes. And my world was falling apart so much. I was working in a bar. I was drunk all the time. I was high on acid, like, half the days and doing ecstasy the rest of the time. Whatever I could do to not be myself, I did. Um, and then I moved to LA, which was actually my saving grace. Again, biology, psychology, environment, spirituality. My environment changed. I knew nobody who did drugs like I did. I knew them in Buffalo, but I didn't know them in LA. So for the first six months in LA, I just went back to drinking because that's what everybody did. Mm-hmm. Um, no Coke, no ecstasy, no real weed even at the time. Um, and it took six months. I met a girl here. She introduced me to ecstasy here again, and then the wheels start spinning. And that time they moved a lot faster because I already knew how to do everything. So we went from doing a little bit of ecstasy every once in a while to a lot of it. I was broke, so I didn't have money to do a lot of ecstasy, so I started selling it. Um, 
I figured out that if I get the money from all my friends to buy the ecstasy and I go to the dealer, then yeah, I have risk, but I get it for cheaper. And if I lower the cost of it, then I can use their money to buy my drugs. I don't have to put my own money because I didn't getting, have any. That's what they call getting high on your own supply, right? Oh, I, that was <laughs> that was my entire uh, drug dealing yeah, MO. story. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I did not listen to Biggie Smalls in time, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but so I figured that out and I was getting drugs for my girlfriend and myself for free. And then I realized, oh my God, if I can get even more drugs, even more ecstasy, then um, it'll be even cheaper. I borrowed money from a friend. I'll never forget it, $750 for 50 pills because then it was $15 instead of $25 if you bought them one at a time. And now I was making $10 per pill and I have 50 of them. So I could make $500. Probably used about a quarter to half of those pills with my girlfriend, but I made some money. Saved that money, reborrowed the money from my friend, did it a few times, and then I, was, I became a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was selling ecstasy all the time. Then people kept asking for more and more stuff. And eventually somebody asked me for meth. I didn't even know what it was. I found a meth connection got them the meth, started selling meth, never trying it yet. And then one day, um, that girl broke up with me. It's a common theme. There's a pattern emerging here. Are you catching the pattern? I'm catching the pattern, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I knew you were a smart one. Um, Broke up with me, it's right before finals time, I'm miserable again, I'm in this depression state and I'm not studying, I'm not doing anything. My friend goes, hey, if you do some of the meth, you'll be able to stay up. And I go, okay. And so I stayed up for three days with this other girl studying. Like she was in her corner studying her stuff. I was studying my stuff. We'd go out for cigarette breaks. And for 72 hours straight, we studied. And I did okay in finals. And I've learned about meth. And that drug took a hold quickly. Within six months, I was using it every day. Within a year, I was using it all day, every day. I was already out of school at that point. And my life had become selling drugs and using them. And I did that from... Um, you know, 99 to 2002, mm-hmm. late 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, in the middle of that, I got a really big arrest, which then resulted in SWAT team arrest at the end of 2001, 2002. And, um, and that was the first huge stop sign of something needs to change. But by the time the SWAT team arrested me, I was either high on meth or passed out or using benzos or GHB at the time, a lot of GHB to fall asleep. Um, and that was my life, this cycle of selling drugs and using it with the people who were buying for me, buying drugs from people above me, using them. It was my entire life yeah, was like right. that. And so yeah. um, that's why I, I laugh a little bit now when people say, well, you know, you don't, know you don't understand this because you don't know what addiction is. I go, you have no idea what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. I'm pausing our conversation here to remind you about my 2020 Sober Curious retreat, which is taking place February 14th to 16th at the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health in Massachusetts. This will be a three-day immersion into all things Sober Curious, where I will guide participants through a series of interactive workshops to help you answer some of the deeper questions about you and booze. The retreat is open to all, regardless of your current relationship with alcohol. Maybe you have 10 years of sobriety and are looking for some new tools and perspectives. 
or maybe you've only just begun to reevaluate your drinking. Everybody is welcome, and based on the feedback we got on this year's retreat, I know you will come away with new inspiration and motivation for your path going forward. There are multiple pricing options available depending on what level of accommodation you book, and all food, along with daily yoga, is also included. There's a link to learn more in my profile on Instagram at Ruby Warrington, where you can search for the program on the Kripalu website at www.kripalu.org. Now back to Adi. So the SWAT team arrest, was that the kind of like rock bottom moment? Was that a wake up call for you or were there, was there something else? Was the writing already very much on the wall for you by that point? Well, you know, I, I mean, I think if you if I really look back at it, there were a lot of different rock bottoms. Uh, what do people say sometimes? Like my butt got dragged along the bottom for, for a little while um, and hit a lot of rocks. Mm. I mean, I'd had four arrests by that time. Mm. I'd spent about a week in jail beforehand I broke my leg in the motorcycle accident that led to that SWAT team arrest and I'd gotten arrested in the hospital so that was the first oh my god kind of moment yeah right um you know rock bottom is one of those really interesting phrases because you only really recognize the bottom once you've come up it can always get worse you only know that it was the worst moment when you when you're on the other side and you're on top of the next mountain you go oh my god that was the bottom yeah so I don't know that that was really my bottom, but it was the process of getting aware of how dark things had gotten started around that time. Um, because following that, I went to rehab to save mm. myself from going away for 20 years mm. with all the drugs oh, and everything right, they I found. Mm-hmm. And I relapsed in rehab. Okay. And at least when I got arrested by a SWAT team, you can say in some way, I didn't know how badly things could get that something that big had never happened. But now the SWAT team arrested me and I was facing literally about 15, 18 years in prison or something like that, even more maybe. Um, and there I was relapsing in rehab. How does fully that happen? Relapsing in rehab? People dealing in rehab? No, they. Um, I was sober there for a month or, well, I should say I was there for a month. Yeah. And after a month, I was allowed to go back to work. And work for me was a recording studio where I didn't know it at the time, but I was essentially acting out on sex. So I'd, I would get high, watch porn, and play a little bit with music. Like That's kind of what I did in my recording studio. When I was dealing before, it was the same thing. It would just be people coming to buy. So it was literally, I just replayed that life. Yeah, I, just, right. I just went back to what I knew how to do. So environment piece, but yeah, you're right back in the same environment. 100%. Yeah. And so I would just do what I knew how to do in that environment. So I would go to the studio. Initially, I would just play with music and porn, and then I'd found some drugs because you know it was my studio and nobody went in there to clean it and i wasn't doing it so looked around found some stuff uh and started getting high and so i did that for about two more months before they caught me Mm -hmm. so i was using in rehab for two months without them knowing and i felt like shit about it i was lying to everybody lying to my parents etc but when i got kicked out of that rehab i had a moment that uh I talked to Sophie about in one of our recent episodes so if anybody wants to check that out uh maybe we can put a link to that and Mm -hmm. it's um it was, I told him the truth. I'd gotten kicked out of rehab and I ended up fessing up to it. And it was, there was this moment where he was exacerbated. Exa- Whoa, sorry. There was this moment where he was exasperated and mm. um, he yelled out at me, what do you expect us to do? What do you, what do you want me to do? You just screwed everything up again. Cause I this screwed is your up doctor? things a lot. Or, no, my dad. Oh, your dad, right. And, uh, and I said, you can't do anything. I got to go fix this on my own. 
And that was the first moment I started taking responsibility right. for all of this. Still right. used for another two, three weeks. Okay. Every day. Yeah. But my thinking about it was different. So what was something, what was it that changed your thinking, do you think? Um, I mean, I think what happened in that moment is I realized nobody else is going to get me out of this. Mm. I have to do it. Mm. Again, back to the abstinence myth, I wasn't sober. I wasn't sober when I said that. I wasn't sober for weeks after it. Abstinence was not the thing that started my recovery. Mm. The realization was the thing that started my recovery. Um, Used for another couple of weeks while in and out attending this outpatient program. The counselor in that program helped me find my next rehab. Went to that next rehab and then I was committed. Stayed in it for eight months while I was fighting my case. Ended up getting one year in jail instead of 15, 16, 18 years, whatever. Served that year, got out, and restarted life. Right, okay. And so when you when you say restarted life, restarted life sober, abstinent? I was sober for like three when, years. For yeah, three I, was, years. I was totally so abstinent for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, from walking into that second rehab, mm. through jail, mm. through almost another full year after, mm-hmm. I think maybe another full year after. Um, so when I started graduate school, I was fully sober. I couldn't get a job, couldn't get hired to save my life because I had nine felonies and nobody wants to hire a nine-time convicted felon. Um, so I couldn't get a job. And instead, I um, I went back to school. My parents were incredible in being willing to pay my rent and for school. So I went back for my master's because I graduated uh, my bachelor's before. Mm. And um was totally sober for the first year, year and a half of that bachelor por- of that master's program. But I started studying and I was studying social psychology and abnormal psychology and I'd done all that in undergrad, but I was... So you studied psychology in college first time? I did, yeah. Okay. And so I went back to psychology, but I started working and doing research in this lab that was doing hepatitis C and HIV research primarily with people who use drugs. Mm. And I fell in love with the work. I just really, really loved the work. And Mm. I started saying to myself, you know, I've got to figure out what happened. And so I went all in on psychology and neuroscience, genetics, all that kind of stuff to figure out how I even got to where I'd gotten to and did really well in that program. You got sober curious. (laughs) I got um, I got sober curious after I got sober. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And got into my Ph.D. program at UCLA. But by that point, I was drinking Um, in the middle of graduate school. My master's program, I had a six month conversation with my mom. Uh, my dad, even my sp- sponsor. By that point, I was going to meetings, but I'd call my sponsor from AA. And I was saying, you know, I think, I don't think I'm the guy everybody's describing. I don't think this thing that you guys say applies to me applies. Um, I know that's what everybody says. That's kind of what you tell everybody, that that's what we say. It's our disease talking to us. And, and it's you're trying in denial. To trick us, and, and I'm in denial. Mm-hmm. I said, I understand that that's what you're telling me, but I don't think that's true. I'm learning about all this stuff. I think, mm. I think this is different. Mm. And so I think I want to, do the experiment. I want to try to see if I can drink normally. And I kind of, I didn't do it sporadically. I, I set it all up. I talked to my family. I said, look, I don't need you to wait to find out if this is going okay or not. When I was in the middle of everything, I was an asshole. Delusional, self-obsessed, self-focused, um, completely lacking in empathy or any way of caring about what you guys felt. And also I was, I disappeared. Mm. You would call and I wouldn't answer. That doesn't happen now. I go, if that starts happening again, I'm screwing up. 
don't wait. You don't have to wait to see if I'm using meth again. I don't have to get arrested again. If I become an asshole again and I disappear on you, something went wrong with this experiment. We talked about it for months. My mom wasn't even worried because she said, well, I, you drank a lot in high school and college, but I don't think you ever had a problem, whatever. Like nobody, nobody really knew what to do with it. And that experiment started in 2004, before 2005, because that's when I was starting my PhD program. So it's been 15 years. 15 years. It's going great. And you, so this is the kind of like, ta-da, surprise everybody. Oh yeah. Despite what everything you've just learned and heard about a D, a D not sober. is not sober. He drinks. And you, you use the term drink normally, sure. which I guess that's something, you know, having having broken down actually earlier, the, the kind of like statistics about what drinking mm. actually looks like in this country. Yeah. Maybe there is something. I mean, I, I'm kind of of the thinking there is no such thing as normal drinking yeah. because of what you said before I'm a social as drinker. well about like there we're all completely we're all somewhere on a spectrum, right? So there's no such thing as normal because we're all so different. Totally. But at the same time, I'm a social drink, non-problematic social, drinker. Social non-problematic drinker, yep. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I um for the first long while, Sophie reminded me of this when we were recording our podcast. Um, Sophie's your wife, by the Sophie's way. Sophie's my wife. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> For the first little while, I drank very little. So I would drink once a week, once every other week, and like a drink. Mm. A couple of times a year, I might have a couple of drinks. But that's mm. that lasted months and months and months. Mm. I was very careful about it. and Because, um, you know, I was sober in A for three years. I was pretty much told verbatim that if I let a drop of alcohol touch my tongue, because once alcohol enters your mind, you're powerless around it, that... Um, I would be smoking meth again, like under a bridge or, you know, in my car. Now people have decided to tell me different stories of what that was supposed to really mean. They're like, oh, well, you were never an alcoholic. You were a drug addict. I go, yeah, well, try to play that in an AA meeting. Oh, no, no, you can smoke weed all you want. Just don't go back to drinking. I don't, I don't hear that being said all that much. I was 100% told if I try to drink again, I will go back to everything. My disease has been waiting for me in the background and it's doing push-ups which is the most ridiculous anthropomorphizing that I've ever heard in my life. Your disease doesn't have you know, a body and doesn't do push-ups. I understand the, the analogy, but it's a little bit ridiculous. Um, and so I didn't know it would happen. And the first time I drank again, I took one sip and I sat back and I was like, okay. This is it. Let's see what happens. Because I didn't Here know. Here comes trouble. Yeah. Um, but the long story short is um, I gradually reorganized what drinking meant in my life. So just so it's clear, um, I have very strict kind of rules that are no longer rules that I have to actually adhere to. They just, they're automatic now. They're mm. habitual. Mm. I will pretty much never drink more than three drinks in a sitting. Um, and when I say never, have there been times in the last 15 years? Absolutely. Less than one a year. And they are literally, we're away at a wedding Right. The, somebody's watching the kids. We're sleeping overnight, like in these very crazy, unique settings. Not because I have to hold myself back from drinking. What happens in my head now is two is sort of the normal amount of drinks that I will have. Like last night, I had half a glass of wine. Um, two is what seems kind of regular to me. By the time I pour the third drink in my head, it's like a party night. It just it completely shifted the way I think about drinking. And so, 
you know, we talk about neuroplasticity, new habits, etc. My brain thinks about drinking completely different now than it did back then. And so I um, I just don't struggle with it. It's just not so, a problem. So why not? I mean, I guess, is it was it those three years of sobriety that gave you the clear-headedness to be able to step out of the behavior, to observe, to learn it's about yourself? Question. Was it what you were learning in school? Like, what was it that changed your perception totally. to this extent? Because so this is this is something that isn't talked about a lot. Yeah. I interviewed, um, I'm sure you know Mark Lewis's work. He sure. wrote a brilliant book, The Biology of Desire, Why yeah. Addiction is Not a Disease. And I interviewed him for the book and he told me that I think like around 40%, again, it's another stat, maybe you can qualify it, 40% of people who've been through recovery programs are able to, and I don't even like the term able, but go on to drink socially again and it sure. not be problematic. Yeah, there's another researcher who I love, Katie Witkowitz. We can put maybe a link to one of her studies. Mm. She she looked at the trajectory of relapse only for people who'd been to rehab because that's how she found them mm. and found that something like a quarter to 30% returned to moderate drinking. Mm. Um so you ask so, yeah, why, why and look. What was it? What are the It's what always the hard conditions? to draw conclusions about everybody else from my story, right? Yeah, and I, yeah. and I try to be very careful about that because yeah. um, I don't want to be one of those people like in the program who says, well, this is what I did. So if you do it, it'll work for you. Yeah. Because I think that's bullshit. Right. And I just don't think it's true. Interesting. Um, yeah. It's funny that just to pause there for a please. second because it's kind of like, you know, you can't compare yourself to like, I, I'm even feeling slightly nervous about asking you this because mm. it's like I don't want to imply that based on what Adi says it's okay for you everybody out there listening be sober for three years sober, and then if you be sober can, for three years then you can go back to drinking and then you can drink quote unquote normally again no. I don't want to be that person but at the same time is there equal danger in saying you have to be completely abstinent sure. and if well, you're not completely abstinent then you're gonna yeah well without taking us on too big of an aside <laughs> here's, the, here's my issue with it right if people knew how to be sober for three years then they'd just be sober for three years it's just that that's really, really hard to do. For the vast majority of people, that's really, really most people don't make it to a year. Right. So saying to somebody, well, if you're so sober for three years, then you can drink again is insane. Mm. Because to me, that's not all that different than the other thing. Mm. So mm. so I'll tell you, I, and I spent a lot of time on this, right? Because when I came up with the Ignited Recovery Method, the idea was what happened? What yeah. changed it? So yeah. um, here's what I think happened. What I think happened is because I had a real commitment to staying on the well-paved, narrow road. You know, I got a year in jail, but I had a seven-year suspended sentence, which meant that if I got in trouble again, I got seven years added to whatever I would have again. So I had a lot of motivation after being in jail for a year to not mess up again. Yeah. And so I looked everywhere for what to do. I mean, even when I was in that second rehab, look, nothing other than my mindset changed between the first rehab and the second rehab. It's just that in the second rehab, I realized how serious this was and how I needed to step up. So mm. in that moment, I started becoming willing, and people talk about this all the time, becoming willing to do whatever it was. And in the in the sober living house, the being willing was being willing to do whatever it took for them to keep me there. It was a pretty simple equation. When I got out of jail, it was different. It was being willing to do whatever required not to go back to jail. Now, the parameters there changed all the time. At first, I thought I would get, get a job, but I couldn't get a job. So then it became go to school. And then going to school was only... a thing because i needed to do something mm. i couldn't just sit around because i would go back to drug mm. dealing mm. right i knew how to sell drugs and make money and if and i didn't have something else to do i would point. go yeah. do that so i went back to school it was because i was in school that i found something i was passionate about and it was because i found something that i was passionate about that i had this extra motivation to get a 4.0 and kill 
in that program so I could get into UCLA. Once I got into UCLA, I saw the PhD at the top and I went, okay, if I get that, it makes up for everything else that I did because I'll be able to do amazing work because people will start trusting me and believing. So I kept having these goals. And I think that was one of the important things. When I talk about spirituality, for me, purpose yeah. is one of the biggest elements of spirituality. Yeah, I liked it when you mentioned that earlier because I think spirituality, a lot of people can automatically just kind of like, oh, sure. pff, no, I, get I, don't it. I don't, don't want to go there. Just to be clear, I don't believe in God. Yeah. I'm not religious in any way. I'm spiritual in the sense that I understand the power of meditation and connection. And um, I'm deeply, deeply connected to my purpose. So all the work that I do, and by the way, for those of you who think that I'm a, a multimillionaire doctor sitting in a castle, uh, we live in a beautiful house. My wife made all the money to live in this house. Uh, I barely make any money from the work that I do because I care much more about giving people the services that they need than making a ton of money off of them. And so it's surviving, but I'm not, mm. it's not like some cash cow for yeah. me. Um, but what happened was when I found that purpose, it changed everything. And it speaks to some of the reason I do the work that I do with people now is the elements that I found that work were being able to finally be transparent and open about what's really going on for me, honesty. Um, secondly, acceptance. And part of that is self-acceptance, which is really difficult for a lot of us. And then thirdly is the support. And the support includes outside support. It includes uh, career and you know resources and all the things that, that are required to, to have a life. And so mine came about in this really haphazard way, right? Like I was honest with my dad. There's this part of, um, in the book, I talk about three principles, honest exploration, radical acceptance, and individualized transformation. Radical acceptance is this part where you have to settle into just being okay with what is right now in the moment, understanding you can work to make it better. But I think a lot of us, we try to run away from our past. We try to run away from the things that don't feel complete about who we are and we try to mask them. That's part of the thing that drugs and alcohol are so good at doing is helping us mask them. Radical acceptance by saying, you know what, I don't have to hide. Mm. And that conversation I had with my dad was radical acceptance. Mm. I screwed up. I'm taking responsibility. I have to fix it is acceptance. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to try to make excuses for it. I messed up. I need to own this. I need to fix it. It's acceptance. Um, now, for a lot of people, I believe that part of the reason that that's so hard is because there's so much outside judgment. Mm. It's hard to accept yourself when everybody else looks at you as a piece of shit or a loser or uh, an addict, which sort of honestly, let's be honest about it, kind of wraps all those words up into one, right? Uh, just maybe also unmotivated, lying loser and who's lazy. Like it's just all this and stuff weak. kind of, and weak, right? All this stuff kind of gets wrapped up in one word, which is why I hate the word so much. So I believe that the three years of abstinence helped. I'm not going to lie. The reason it helped is it put front and center in front of my face what was uncomfortable, so I had to go fix it. That's why even earlier we talked about sober curious, to me, is about would I be happier without alcohol? Could I bring more into my life without alcohol? But if you take the 
with that alcohol piece out of each one of those senses, they still hold. Mm. Could I be happier? Mm. Is there more I can bring into my life? Are there things I'm putting up with that I shouldn't? Right? That's what eliminating the alcohol and the drugs allowed me to do. Those were not a solution. Um, taking them out made it very clear what I can and cannot tolerate. And I had this big reason to act. And a lot of people who come to me have a big reason to act. Their wife's about to divorce them. Their kids won't talk to them. They got arrested, whatever the thing is. What I do with people is I say, look, there's a good reason for you to change life right now. You're not ready to quit. Not ready to quit. We got to change the way you're living, right? And what I find inevitably is when you have that conversation, there's no resistance. Because everybody who comes to me understands that they can't keep living like this. And we start there and then whether abstinence or not ends up being part of the equation, we diligently and deliberately and seriously work on addressing all these little elements, the honesty, the mm. self-acceptance, mm. et cetera, that, mm-hmm, uh, that's mm-hmm. been left behind. Whatever it is that's missing, the lack of purpose, like yeah. why is that? So what about, like for you, it was insecurity, right? How did you over, How did you start working on your insecurity? Like how did you? So a couple of things. Yeah. First of all, it's still here. Right, like, just <laughs> so everybody, everybody, Just so everybody understands it, right? Like I have parties at my house, like, Shabbat dinners when I say parties we're not talking about raves right here but like um, (laughs) although we have those sometimes too but um, like we'll have a big dinner at home with 15-20 people I'm still kind of like the guy who sits a little bit in the corner and has a conversation with one or two people every once in a while the self-confident version of me comes out Uh, and again I drink so every once in a while it comes out more because I drank Um, but now I accept that internal voice much much better than I used to there are a lot of other versions of that, right? Like, I'm a little nerdy and geeky. I don't feel bad about that at all now. I hated it in high school. I wanted to be one of the cool kids. I was not one of the cool kids. Um, so a lot of the self-acceptance allows me to recognize that I don't need to change elements of who I am. Or be ashamed of them. I'm just like thinking there's a there's like a, a plank of wood with the, the words fuck shame yeah, in your office. That to me. It's great. <laughs> but that's what you're describing, right? Yeah. There's a, a, an a abandonment of that feeling of shame. Yeah, and I wear fuck like, shame around my wrist. Great. <laughs> and uh, when in, it's one of the it's one of my mottos. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, fuck shame is all about radical acceptance. You know, too fat, too skinny, too stupid, too smart. But I think that thing too quiet, too kind of nerdy, too shy is a really big one, you know? Yeah. yeah, Yeah. um, Here's the bottom line is that there, um, you can be too anything, (laughs) too little anything or too much of anything. (laughs) Yeah. I've worked with billionaires who have the exact same internal struggles as people on welfare we tend to think that there's some external stimuli, some external factor that will fill in that internal void. And it's just not true. And that's where acceptance comes in. Now, for a lot of times, the reason I put the first piece in my process, which is honest exploration, a lot of people who come to me don't even know what they need to accept yet. Yeah, They've been running away from it for so long. Probably from the age of like 12, 13. Yeah. Whenever Easily. it first came up. Easily. Mm-hmm. So when I say to them, hey, you got to accept yourself. They're like, 
I, I mean, I guess I do. I'm a piece of shit. I guess I accept that. And I go, no, 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 no. We got to dig in. And so honest exploration is about what is it you're even running away from? And when we find that, it's this magical moment for people when they first realize what really bothers them um, and they let it sink in. They go, oh my God, I've been dealing with this thing for 25 freaking years. It's just been in the background always because it's always there. To it's the point voice. you can't even see it because it feels like such a It's literally it's the lens through which you, you see the world. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I used to walk around the world looking at everybody's eyes. I'd have sunglasses on maybe and like I'd look at everybody to see if they're looking at me and judging me. I was, I was in constant anxiety and fear about what other people thought of me, mm. which creates a really terrible way to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and so honest exploration allows you to figure out what it is you have to accept and then you've got to accept it. So um, for me, that conversation with my dad was one of them. But then there were these endless moments of humility and acceptance that just kept coming up when i was open to them Mm -hmm. and in my program and in the book what i tell people and this is the probably the overarching principle to everything that i do is this fuck shame principle it doesn't matter what it is because everybody always says well yeah you can say that but but if you knew about my stuff you it's too much i've seen it all incest since the age of three and four um, being abandoned by your parents, long-term abuse in your relationships, deep poverty all the way to affluence to levels that are so insane that like because a family member died, your your fortune went down by $2 billion, which for some of us sounds like a dream. Like, wait, you're telling me my worth can go down by $2 billion? How, how much was I worth before? <laughs> right. Well, if you care a lot about money and you live in one of those families, then yeah. losing 25% of the family net worth just because your family member died and you stepped in their shoes feels really debilitating because it shows you that people don't trust you and don't care about you. So, And that you're a failure, yeah. You and that you're, they'd see you as a, as a relative failure at mm. least. Um, mm. So I've seen it all. Mm. None of it is too big. None of it is too small. It doesn't matter. The point is to get clear about it, honest, and then accept it radically. And then the rest of the work is kind of fun, to be honest. What's different for me is I don't label people and I don't tell them that they have to stop before they come get the help. Because a lot of people just aren't ready. They're just not willing. That was going to be my question, actually. Like, Do you ask for people to quit using whatever they've been using during this process? Not at all. No. Not at all. Um, why not so we have groups and some of the people are actively using some of the people will tell me I'm I'm a little tipsy right now mm. during the group mm-hmm. um, why not because I don't think we should put any hurdles on the way to care I think we should make getting help as easy as possible I mean like imagine imagine that question in any other scenario right like imagine if um, you went to rent a house and in order to rent a house, you'd have to already have a house. Or imagine if you needed physical therapy. And in order to get to physical therapy, they tell you, well, you have to be able to walk into our office. Or imagine if you were depressed and you went to see somebody for depression. And they said, well, you can't be depressed when I see you. You have to be optimistic when you walk in here. It sounds insane when I say it in these <laughs> yeah, other right. scenarios, right? Yeah. Or like somebody would say to you, hey, you know, yeah. you've been working together for six months and you keep getting depressed. I can't work with you anymore. 
it's insane when we say it in another formula. I mean, people do this all the time. Like, you can't show up to sessions intoxicated. Uh, some therapists literally will say, well, you have to be sober for 30 days before, I, before I'll see you. That's literally like saying to somebody, hey, you have to figure out how to treat your problem before I'll come treat you. I have a lot of people who were not at all sober when they started with me. Sometimes they would drink before a session or they had a really crappy day and they would drink and then contact me. A lot of those people are sober now. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are drinking mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that doesn't produce problems for them. Mm-hmm. I've learned through now having worked with hundreds and hundreds, maybe even a couple of thousands of people. I have no idea what somebody's life is going to look like based on what it looks like when they come see me. None. I've dealt with people who are at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom and they're doing amazingly well right now. And I dealt with people who seemed pretty good. Like they only drank a bottle and a half of wine a night. And... Um, they had the hardest time getting it together. So that honesty, the ability to be responsible and honest comes to me over and above everything else. Yeah. And when you start owning who you are and being able to be honest about it, that honest exploration thing that I yeah. talked about, um, the payoff from that is monumental. And yeah. it'll it'll cascade into other areas of your life. It's interesting that you talk, like this is making me think about, you know, people will ask me, are you like, is is this about abstinence is the ultimate kind of goal are you kind of like anti-alcohol pro and i'm like if i'm if i'm anti anything i'm anti you lying to yourself about what's going on in your life and if i'm pro anything i am pro clarity is something i say a lot but now you're reminding me i'm actually pro integrity and like Mm. just pro honesty you know and if that is abstinence for you then great and if it's not then be honest about that too and that's why i like your approach so much this unapologetic i don't need to be abstinent and i consider myself to be well and healthy and not to be a problem user you know yeah despite the history and despite all of the well perhaps because of and what i have now because i speak about it publicly it's that i have a lot of transparency mm. a lot of it so everybody in my life knows everything mm. Mm. my wife knows everything for me, it's more about making sure I'm not hiding. Yeah. If you choose to hide, there will be endless places to hide. That's how easy we should make it. Yeah. Yeah. When we expand outside of this insane world that we've created, which is the addiction recovery world, a lot of these choices just seem rational. Yeah. My job at Ignited is to just help more people understand that all the choices they've made in life up to now are probably just rational decisions. They're not some crazy sick people. And now we just got to unravel what those decisions were accept them for what they are, fix them and move on. Even the using, even the problematic ru- using is what seems like a rational decision based the moment, on the person's 100%. current state of mind. Yeah, right. I've yeah. never heard the, a full story from somebody in my program or in any uh, work that I've done. I've never heard the full story and it and went, why the hell are you using? I've, that's never happened to me. Yeah. I, it totally makes yeah. sense when I hear the story. Totally, which is why it's so great to hear stories. Yes. So thank you for sharing your story with yeah, us Yeah, thank today. you so much for doing this. And I'd love it if you could just share a little bit about this. Um, you're launching a conference and it's hopefully going to become an annual thing. It will. Talking about many of these themes. What sort of, what's going to be on offer at the conference? So Ignited is all about purpose. Like mm-hmm. we talked about before, mm-hmm. Ignited is all about helping people become Ignited. Recovery, relationships, life in general, I look at them all as connected. Mm. And so Ignited Glow, which is our the event here for 2019 is all about that. There's some recovery stuff in there. There's some trauma stuff. There's some relationship things, some wellness. It's essentially a way for you to come in to the safe space and have 
the difficult and the uplifting and the inspirational and the educational conversations with a bunch of other people from all over the world who came to do the same thing um, and find that spark in yourself, right? My goal is for people to walk out realizing and recognizing parts of themselves that they've been hiding away from, that they've been ashamed of. I want everybody to walk out saying, you know, fuck shame. I'm going to live my life to the best of my ability in the best way that I can. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really, I mean, the list of people is insane. If you just go to, it's a, the, there's a bit.ly link of just ignited glow, all caps. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I can't believe we got all these people to, to join us. So it's going to be really, really Well, fun. I'll definitely include the link in the show notes for people who are listening to this in time. If you're listening to this kind of way in the future, you're going to be making it an annual thing, hopefully. We'll make it an annual thing. And also we will probably have a streaming package while the thing happens because right. there's people from all over the world yeah. who can't make it. Uh, and so who knows maybe we'll even have yeah, that available some for of that purchase available. or something awesome yeah. well I'll, likewise I'll include all the other links where people can find you mm. so they can learn more about your work they can buy your $8 book for $8 go to Adi's website not yeah. Amazon don't buy it on Amazon don't buy it on four, Amazon $4.95 cheaper <laughs> on my site the makers support the artists guys yes. love it. <laughs> Adi thank you for taking the time thank with you me so today much. for sharing your story um, and for your super inspiring controversial (laughs) approach to recovery (laughs) thanks for being controversial with me (laughs) wow so what did you make of that i feel like i'm going to get a lot of feedback on this episode and i genuinely would like to hear your thoughts on this idea of the abstinence myth personally i believe that quitting full stop is a non-negotiable for anybody who wants to change their drinking habits in the long term but this is also based on my experience I've also got to a place in my life where I see no reason and have no desire to drink, even if I quote unquote could. And so I guess you could say I'm abstinent by default. But again, this is my story. And as we heard in this interview, the most important thing when it comes to living a truly authentic, sober, curious life is to be really, really honest about whatever works for you. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a friend. And if you listen on iTunes, subscribe and leave a five-star review to help other people find the series. See you again here soon. This podcast features original music and is edited by aloeaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com.